Please take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to Acts chapter 9 and follow with me as I read verses 32 through 43. Acts chapter 9 and we begin today at verse 32. And it came to pass as Peter passed throughout all quarters, he came down also to the saints which dwelt of Lydda. And there he found a certain man named Aeneas, which had kept his bed eight years and was sick of the palsy. And Peter said unto him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ, maketh thee hold, arise and make thy bed. And he arose immediately. And all that dwelt at Elida and Saron saw him and turned to the Lord. Now there was at Joppa a certain disciple named Tabitha, which by interpretation is called Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and alms deeds, which she did. And it came to pass in those days that she was sick and died, whom when they had washed, they laid her in an upper chamber. And forasmuch as Lydda was nigh to Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent unto him two men, desiring him that he would not delay to come to them. Then Peter arose and went with them. When he was come, they brought him into the upper chamber, and all the widows stood by, weeping and showing the coats and garments which Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all forth and kneeled down and prayed. And turning him to the body, said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and lifted her up, and when he had called the saints and widows, presented her alive. And it was known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And it came to pass that he tarried many days in Joppa with one Simon, a tanner. Father, we... Thank you for your kindness and giving us your word. We pray that as we come before it again this morning, that you would be with us and strengthen us as we seek to understand this text and as we seek, Father, to understand its importance in the particular setting in which it was written and to the first people to whom read these words and, Father, also to us who stand in need to hear your word and to hear your truth today as well. We pray, Father, that the truth that we see here would indeed come home to us and would speak to us. Thank you, Father, for all that you have given in it. And we pray and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If we've been following the messages in the last several weeks, which uh, looks like most of us, not all of us, have been, it might seem a little surprising to us that, um, the, that Luke here in our text that we read this morning seems to shift very suddenly from the Apostle Paul to the Apostle Peter. We know that in the very first part of this chapter, actually almost two-thirds of the chapter, that Luke has been speaking, recording, uh, things about uh, Saul and now the Apostle Paul, about his conversion, about his um, 
uh, a call to apostleship and how that took place on the road to Damascus, how it all came to him and his uh, first stay in Damascus and how he immediately began to preach the gospel there in Damascus and then how he went uh, for some time into Arabia, which we saw from Galatians. And for about three years, there was a three-year period there. We could say it was the early part of his apostolic career. Um, and then how he was finally uh, shipped off, we could say, to Tarshish. Not to be in- inactive, but simply to go to a place where he could do further apostolic work. And so that's the subject that Luke is dealing with in the first part. Uh, and like I said, the first two-thirds, actually, of this chapter, Acts chapter 9, and uh, we would probably think, well, why doesn't he continue to do that? And we would expect that that might happen uh, the rest of the chapter, but that's not the case. As we have read in our passage this morning, Luke is finally, uh, suddenly shifting here back to the Apostle Peter and uh, speaking of him. And so the question that we need to naturally ask ourselves as students of Scripture um, is why does Luke do this? What's the point in it? Is this just something that's happenstance that Luke just happens to do as he's putting together things? And I believe that most of us, if not all of us, would say, no, that's not the case because we know that the Bible is divinely inspired it is the work of the Holy Spirit. And Acts here is the work of the Holy Spirit. is God Himself, God the Spirit, who's putting together the words of, of Luke as He puts together His material in Acts. And so we should go deeper than that. And we should ask ourselves then, why does Luke do this? Why does he all of a sudden abruptly stop with Apostle Paul and pick up with the Apostle Peter? And I believe that the answer to that is not really far away. It's not very hard to see. If we keep in mind the overall objective, the overall theme of Luke in this this book, that overall theme, remember, is to show Theophilus and us uh, Christians down through the ages how the gospel spread throughout the world in the day. We need to keep that theme in mind. And as we keep that theme in mind, I believe that the, the answer uh, is close at hand here. Why Luke would show this abrupt shift here uh, from the Apostle Paul to the Apostle Peter. Let me explain it this way. In the first 31 verses of this chapter, as we've seen, it's about Paul, isn't it? It's about Paul. And uh, then... From 32 to the end of 43, it's about Peter, isn't it? It comes back to Peter. And uh, as we think about this, we know that uh, this section here, chapters 9 through 12, is the last section basically in Acts where we will be talking about Peter. And at Acts chapter 13, uh, Luke will concentrate on the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And so what we see here then is a transition period. It's, it's, Luke, it's Luke's way of uh, making this transition from, uh, from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the gospel going to those quarters, to the gospel going 
to the whole world. And Luke makes that transition. And it's really a beautiful transition here between going from Peter and going to Paul. And so what we're going to see then in this transition period is uh, Peter is the main person that is being talked of in the first 12 verses of the chapters. Paul is the main person being talked about after chapter 13 and afterwards. And so what we see here then is Peter's ministry still right here in these 9 through 12, but we see Peter receding in the background and we see the Apostle Paul coming to the foreground. And that's Luke's way of making this transition. It is not, uh, uh, we can, we can, it is not, definitely not Peter's ministry ending. That's not what this means. Peter's ministry is not going to end. We see that uh, throughout the book of Acts, abundantly clear that Peter is continued to be used by God in a mighty way. That's not it at all. Um, it is not that Peter uh, was just simply a uh, apostle to the Jews and never spoke to the Gentiles and that he was confined only to Jerusalem and to Judea and maybe to Samaria. That's not it at all. In fact, as we come to Acts chapter 10, we will see that it was Peter and not Paul who actually opened the door of the gospel to the Gentiles. Not Paul, but it was Peter who first did that. And we'll see that, Lord willing, when we come to, to, to the 10th chapter. And so in no wise can we say that Peter was confined just simply to the Jews, his ministry. He preached to the Gentiles. In fact, he, as I said, he opened the door of the gospel to the Gentiles. And also, we have to realize as we see this that, um, that this doesn't mean that there was some kind of difference between Peter's gospel and Paul's gospel. Now, I want to emphasize that. Because there is a current teaching today, a very popular teaching today, that wants to make out as if there was a tremendous difference between the gospel Peter preached and the gospel Paul later started preaching. And that, folks, is not so. Uh, all we need to do is just simply look at these, first, these chapters 9 through 12, this, this transition period, to see very clearly that that's not so. Everywhere we look, as we consider the preaching of Peter and as we consider the preaching of Paul, that they were one mind and one heart and one gospel. And they preached the same gospel. Not two different gospels, but the same gospel they preached. And folks, let me say this, there has always from the very beginning of time only been one gospel, amen? From the very beginning of time. And so there is no more than one gospel and Peter and Paul are preaching the same gospel and Luke shows that here in this transition period and uh, it is marvelous. And so it's a rich harmonizing here, a transition period. It's not that there's a diminishing of Peter's importance uh, or an end of Peter's ministry or anything like that, but it's simply Luke showing that he's going to shift the focus now from from the ministry to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and now the, 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 uh, the focus is shifting to the ministry to the Gentiles. And so therefore, Paul comes more, we can say, into the limelight, because he was the official apostle to the Gentiles. So that's why we go back now to Peter here, 
Because, because Luke is making this transition and he has talked about Paul and Paul's early years as an apostle and now he's coming back to Peter because, because this section after all is about Peter from, uh, from chapter 1 right on through to chapter 12. It is about Peter and so he's coming back to Peter but he will return to Paul in chapter 13. So that's why we see this, this sudden shift here back to Peter now as we uh, read our text uh, this morning. So with that in mind, we come to our text this morning, and here we have two more accounts of uh, things that the Apostle Peter uh, did in his ministry uh, when he was uh, exercising his apostolic uh, office. We have seen him in Jerusalem. We've seen him preaching to, to large crowds in Jerusalem. We have seen him preaching to the Jewish Sanhedrin in uh, Jerusalem. Uh, we've seen him doing mighty miracles, signs and wonders in Jerusalem. Uh, we've seen him suffering for Christ's sake while he was there in Jerusalem. We have seen him basically, we could say, building up the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, fulfilling that prophecy that Jesus said, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock, what? I will build my church. And that's exactly what our Lord is using Peter to do here in these early chapters in Acts. And so we've seen him in these various uh, activities uh, in the previous chapters. But now we come back to him and we still see him very active. And this time we see him active outside the city walls of Jerusalem. He's not confined to Jerusalem now. He's outside the city walls. And we are going to look at two accounts here of what he did, where he was, and what he was doing, and what he was all about doing. And the first one, uh, the first place that we're going to go is this place called Lydda. Now, Luke says in verse uh, 32 that as Peter passed throughout all quarters, and so this man, Peter, was exercising his apostolic office. Sometimes I think we get the impression that he basically stayed in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was his home, but he did not stay in Jerusalem. That was not the case with Peter. And that was not the case with any of the apostles. They went far and wide preaching the gospel. And here we see Peter doing that. He went through all the quarters, and by that I understand, and many as many do, uh, the quarters of Judea, and Galilee, and, uh, and Samaria, outside of Jerusalem. And yes, uh, I do believe that they also went to other countries, and to, even to the Gentile countries as well. But here we see the all quarters more than likely meaning outside of Jerusalem, Judea, and uh, Samaria, and so forth. These uh, outer regions here. And so that's what we're told, beginning in verse 32, and, he's, and we're to, Luke says here at the end of the verse that he came down also to the saints which dwelt at Lydda, which means that there was a small community of Christians in, in this town. Now, if you have a map in your Bible, maps in the back of your Bible, again, I think that they're very helpful. You can go to that map and you can see where this little town was. It's, if you know where Jerusalem uh, is on your map, you can just go in a northwest fashion. Uh, not all the way to the Mediterranean coast, but fairly close to the Mediterranean coast, and you can see this little town of Lydda. And that's where Peter ended up being on this particular occasion 
uh, that we're speaking of here. And now while he was there, we're told in verse 33 that he found a certain man named Aeneas. And what was um, unique about this man is, is that he had an infirmity. He had a disease. And this disease had clutched his life for eight years. And it wasn't just simply a mild disease. It was a serious disease. It was the disease, we're told here, that had uh, caused him to be pretty much bedridden for eight years. It was a form of, uh, of what we would call palsy, or what the King James here says is palsy, which is a, uh, a uh, paralysis, a form of paralysis, uh, where the limbs don't work and where the body cannot function. And so lying down is basically the only thing that the body can do or stay in a stationary position, bedridden for eight years, if you can imagine that kind of illness, that kind of disease. And so we're told here that Peter found such a man. And what Peter is going to do, Peter is going to single him out and Peter is going to heal him by the power of God, of course. He's going to heal him. Now, as we think about this, uh, and as we think about our Lord Jesus Christ, you know, Peter is doing the exact thing that our Lord Jesus Christ did. They're following in his steps. Our Lord Jesus Christ did this. He didn't stay in one spot, did he? He, he also traveled. And, and he traveled to various places in all of Israel. And when our Lord would come to places, uh, in, in several instances in the New Testament, in the Gospels, we understand that he singled out, it seemed like, the worst case scenarios. The people who had the illnesses and the diseases that, that more than likely everybody had given up on. You remember the, uh, the widow who had that infirmity uh, uh, for 12 years and she had spent all of her substance uh, trying to bring a cure to her body uh, on physicians, on doctors, and none of them were able to help. And in an instant, she was cured by our Lord Jesus Christ. And then there was another incident uh, where there was a woman um, who had been bound by Satan for 18 years and, and literally bowed in half, where she was just bent over in half. And couldn't even as much as lift herself up. And in an instant, she was healed by Jesus Christ. And then you probably remember the man who, is, who always made this habit of going to the, to, uh, to the pool of Bethesda and laying there and, and uh, hoping that um, someone would uh, help him get into the waters which he believed would bring healing in his body. And he had been in this lame condition for 38 years. And in an instant, our Savior healed him. And so it seems like that this was the pattern that our Lord Jesus did. He, he went to the worst case scenarios, those who had been ill the longest, where people had given up on them and perhaps the person uh, himself or herself had given up on themselves as well. The worst case scenario. And brought healing by the power of God. 
Now, I do believe that there is spiritual significance here. I mean, I, it would be hard to pass over. Um, I believe that our Lord did this uh, in His ministry. And Peter, of course, following because he followed in the steps of Christ as all the apostles did. Um, I believe that they did this to show the utter helplessness of man in and of himself. That there is no cure for our sin in ourselves. We have no cure ourselves. We cannot heal ourselves of our, of our sin. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leper his spots? And the answer ab actually, absolutely is no. In and of ourselves. We cannot change our skin. We cannot, the leper cannot change his spots, meaning figuratively that we cannot heal ourselves of our great, great uh, sin sickness. Cannot do it. We're, we're, we, are, we are destined to die. And we're destined to die not just physically, but also spiritually and eternally, unless there is a Savior, unless there is a Redeemer to step in. And so this was the whole point, I believe, of the deeper significance of Jesus healing these, these, uh, these awful cases, these hopeless cases. And, and it would be here too, I believe, in Aeneas's case, we need to see the deeper significance here. Uh, Peter came and Peter healed him. Oh, would to God that people who read the scriptures here would see these deeper significances of these passages and not just see, simply see the superficial uh, passage, the meaning in the passage. That we would see, oh, this is me spiritually. This is me in sin. That I have no way of escape but to put up with this disease, this illness in this world and then go pay the consequences in the world to come forever and ever. But Christ has come and Christ has given us the cure. And it's in Christ and in Christ alone. And so there is a deeper significance here, but Peter brought healing to this man. And as he did that, we see that he simply spoke the word. And Peter wasn't seeking to draw any attention to himself. He wasn't uh, exercising pride here at all. He wasn't uh, pretending to be a great healer himself. He just simply said in verse 34, Aeneas, Jesus, uh, Jesus Christ makes you whole. Not me, Aeneas, but Jesus Christ is the one who makes you whole. And so I command you right now, arise and make up your bed. And we're told here he did immediately. In other words, there was no process of healing in Aeneas' life. It wasn't like taking medicine, like taking a, uh, uh, some kind of antibiotic uh, for some kind of infection and take it for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, you hope that you're well and that you progressively get well. It's nothing like that. It was an instant healing, a complete healing. And when we look at all of the healings that our Lord Jesus did and all of the healings that the apostles did in the New Testament, we see that every one of those healings was complete and also was immediate. No process at all to it. Immediately we read Aeneas rose up and walked. Well, again, we see the spiritual significance. When we're born again, we're born again. And uh, things change immediately in our lives. 
uh, uh, immediately we see a truth and immediately we see the gospel and immediately we know and immediately we begin to walk a different direction by the grace of God. So all of these things have that deeper spiritual significance. But Aeneas is immediately healed here by the power of God. And then we see the results of it. And at verse 35, And all they that dwelt of Lydda and Saron, which really is Sharon, saw him and turned to the Lord. Lydda being the town and Sharon, we could say, being the general vicinity, the, the country, we could say, the countryside. The whole territory heard about this. And we're told here that all turned to the Lord. They saw this miracle. This miracle registered in their hearts, not just simply in their thoughts, but in their hearts. And it brought change. It brought convincing change in their life. Repentance and faith in Christ. That's the power of God working. The power of God in conjunction with the gospel. They, see the, they hear the gospel. Uh, they see this, this sign, this wonder, which uh, the signs and wonders were intended to be. They were intended to be uh, a sign pointing to the truth of the one who did the miracle, the truth that he was saying. And this is what they'd said. Oh, this must be true. Look at what has happened. This man, Peter, must be preaching the truth. And so it was a convincing proof of what Peter was saying was the truth. This miracle. And many were told, heard, and they turned to the Lord. They believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. They believed, in other words, the gospel that Peter was undoubtedly preaching at this same time. So, that's the first account that we read about uh, the, the Apostle Peter here in this chapter. The second one begins at verse 36. And... Um, here in verse 36 and right on down, we see that there was a very sad event that took place at a neighboring town called Joppa. There was a community of disciples there as well. There were some Christians there. You see how the gospel has spread already at this point? There's one at Lydda, there's now one at Joppa, and others in Samaria. The gospel is spreading. And so in verse 36, we're told that there was a certain disciple there named Tabitha. That was her Hebrew name. And her Greek name was Dorcas. And uh, we're told at the end of verse 36 that uh, this woman was a woman who was really extraordinary. She was a woman who who all of us should be like. She was a woman, we're told, as Luke relates it here, who was full of good works and alms deeds, which she did. This particular lady was a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And she was one who literally gave herself to the work of the ministry in serving people, in helping people, and doing what she could do by the grace and power of God working in her and using her hands. 
That was the kind of woman she was. I think it's very uh, pertinent that Luke says here that she was full of good works and notice he says, and alms deeds. Meaning that she not only said things that were good, but she did things that were good. She actually put her faith, we could say, into very, very strong action. She was not simply a hearer of the word, but she was very strongly a doer of the word, and in particular, a doer where she was helping other people. And especially, she was helping people in the household of faith, as we'll see here in a very few moments. This is the kind of woman that uh, Dorcas was. She was a godly woman. And she was a woman who seems like was constantly trying to think of ways that she could actually help people and uh, come to their assistance. And especially those people who were in need and poor people in the church. And, and the church has poor folks. In fact, we've seen from the very beginning uh, that uh, the, the, uh, the deacons uh, that we call deacons, I don't think at that particular point that they were considered deacons, they were men who were raised up by God, the seven, to help assist the poor in the church. And so uh, with the church the way it was and disciples the way they were, uh, many of them losing their jobs, many of them were in a poor condition. And this woman, Dorcas, it was her calling, and she knew it, was to do all she could do to relieve the poor and the hurting around her. And so she did this. She didn't say, we don't hear about her preaching anything. She didn't preach. She worked with her hands. She worked with her hands. She did ministry. A lot of people say that, that, uh, that when we uh, deny women the leadership roles in the church, that we're actually denying them ministry opportunities. And folks, that isn't so. That is not so. Not at all. We can minister in powerful, powerful ways and not even really hardly say a word, right? God gives gifts of service to people, ministry, uh, ministering gifts to people that are absolutely crucial in a body of believers. Absolutely crucial. And people who are called into those positions, they serve, they give. Many times it's a thankless, we could say, position because, because people don't recognize them as they would those who are more in the limelight, we can say. But there is one person who recognizes and who needs to be that preeminent person in our mind and heart, and we know who that person is, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. He notices it. And the reward is sure. And it is coming. And we all need to keep that in mind, especially those who have this gift of service and this gift of ministry and who do those things where there is not much thanks, it seems like, and it's a lot of hard work. But yet there is a reward coming, a tremendous reward coming. And we need to keep that in mind. This was the kind of lady that Dorcas was. She was such a woman 
that the church really depended on her. They depended on her ministry. They depended on her doing things with her hands, on the work that she did. We'll see that in just a minute. But she died. She died. And what a blow to the church when somebody like Dorcas passes away. And so Luke, he just simply says in verse 37, and it came to pass in those days that she was sick. We don't know how long she was sick. She died. She died. Um, what a blow. What a, we could say, a source of, of, of grief and sorrow that came into the hearts of these Christians. In this church. But interestingly, they didn't do with her what is normally done. What is normally done is, is that the body is washed. Now they did do that. The body is washed. But <clears throat> secondly, the body is buried. And they didn't bury her. They simply, as we're told at the end of verse 37, laid her in an upper chamber. And this upper chamber very well may have been their meeting place where they met as a body of believers. They laid her there. And the reason that they laid her there becomes very apparent in the next verse. They had something in mind. There is a point to that. They knew that Lydda was not very far away from Joppa. And actually it's about 11 miles, which back in those days was not a very far hike. And they also knew that Peter was there. And they more than likely had heard that Peter had performed this miracle on Aeneas. And so they asked two men in the church, apparently, to go as quickly as they could to, uh, to Lydda to, to get Peter to ask him and to beseech him to do all that they could in their power to come as quickly as he could to Joppa. They didn't tell them to tell Peter the reason. They just simply said, Peter, you're needed very urgently at Joppa. And Peter was willing to go. And so in verse 39, we read, Peter arose and went with them. And when Peter got there, he saw very clearly, of course, what the situation was. He was brought into the upper chamber, and there in the upper chamber were all the widows. And they began to, they were crying and weeping, of course, understandably so. And they began to show Peter everything, uh, the kinds of things, not everything she did, because the room probably couldn't contain everything she did, but the kinds of things that, uh, uh, that uh, uh, Tabitha Dorcas did. They showed her the garments and the coats that she had made and, and undoubtedly made for them, the widows, the poor. Widows were typically very poor in this day. They had no husband. They really had no way to support themselves uh, except by family or by the charitable gifts of others. 
that was really the only way that widows could support themselves, and especially elderly widows. And so they began to show Peter all these things that she had done. And it becomes very apparent to us that this woman was a Proverbs 31 woman. She did not waste her time. She was not idle with her hands. She used her hands and she used her time very wisely. She was up early in the morning feeding her children and preparing. This is the Proverbs 31 woman. And she was up and burning the midnight oil, busy at her, uh, at her loom and sewing and with her fingers and with the needle and the thimble and so forth, sewing. Providing something that somebody needed, the poor needed. This was Dorcas. And they showed Peter all of these kinds of things that, that Dorcas did. And during her life. And as we look at this, we're not told this, but I believe that we can see it. It's definitely inferred in the verse here that, that Dorcas would not have been a person that we would have called an elderly woman where she was advanced in years. It seems like that she was cut off here by death fairly early in life, at least early enough to where she had plenty of strength left to be able to do all of these things. And to be that Proverbs 31 woman, uh, to where she could uh, rise early, be the first one up to help people, and to be the last one in bed to help people, and to be able to uh, even uh, do business deals, and to be smart, and to be wise, and to uh, take care of all kinds of manners. Uh, in, 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 this was Dorcas, and this was the Proverbs 31 woman. Strong, you know. As we look at the text then, it seems like she was uh, at that age where she still had plenty of strength left. Peter put them out. And then we're told that he kneeled down and he prayed. He prayed. And then after he prayed, he turned to Dorcas and he said to Dorcas, Arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. She didn't halfway sit up. She didn't open one eye and then the eye fall back, close again, and then finally managed to open it, and then finally managed to open two eyes, and finally managed to raise her head up she sat up immediately. And so the same principles, spiritual principles, are true here as they were with Aeneas. This is what God does when we are born again. We are indeed born again. We are changed. We see a tremendous difference that begins right away to take root in our hearts and that grows, of course, but we see that change right away, just as we saw uh, Saul's change uh, on the road to Damascus. Uh, yes, I know that everything seemed to just come right at once. Even his call to the apostleship seemed to come right at once. But that right there shows us the grace of God, the power of God as it works. It does bring restoration and it brings it immediately as it did in her life here, the physical healing. And so she sat up 
And then he took her hand in verse 41. And he lifted her up. And then he called the saints in. And the widows. And presented Dorcas to them. Fully alive. Now, Dorcas would have to die again. Lazarus would have to die again. The widow of Nain's son who had died. He would have to, and had been raised again back to this life by Jesus, would have to die again. But we see the power of God, don't we? In this, in this, in this uh, uh, account. And the result was the same as it was basically for Aeneas, the miracle on Aeneas in verse 42. And it was known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. Certainly there were some who didn't. But many believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as they saw this miracle and as they heard the preaching of Peter and the miracle confirming then the truth of what, had, of what Peter had preached, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we come to this passage, I want to just bring to your attention three, I believe, important things that we gather from these two accounts uh, of Peter and his apostolic uh, ministry here. Um, the first one is, is this. The, the whole purpose of miracles in Scripture. And I want to emphasize this. The purpose of miracles, as I said earlier, was to confirm the revelation that God had given the apostles concerning the gospel. That was the purpose of the miracles. And when we look at the scripture as a whole, from the very beginning, we see that this is the, indeed the case of all of the miracles that God did in the scriptures. From the very beginning, throughout here, it is always to confirm the truth of who God is. When we think about Genesis chapter 1 and the creation account and how God created this glorious universe in which we live, it, it, it should drive us as, as a human race to seek the Creator, not to worship the creation, but to seek the Creator, to look beyond the miracle, we can say, and to look to the Creator. And David says in Psalm 19, the heavens do what? They declare the glory of God. And the firmament shows His handiwork. Day in the day utter speech and night in the night showeth knowledge. And so that is the purpose of this great, we could say, miracle of creation. And it's the work of God. And that's Genesis 1, the very first chapter in the Word of God. And the purpose of all of this is to declare that God is who He is, that He is powerful, that He is wise, and that He is creative. And it ought to bring man to seek this Creator. And it also leaves man without excuse for not seeking this Creator. And so from day one, the very first day of creation, that's the whole purpose, we can say, of miracles. It is to confirm the revelation that God has given us. And when we come to the New Testament, we come to exceptional revelation. What more revelation can we have than the person of the Lord Jesus Christ? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was what? 
God. And the Word dwelt among us, uh, we're told, John says. And we beheld Him. He tabernacled with us and we beheld Him and was full of grace and truth. And so the very Word was incarnate and God revealed Himself in a way that He had never in the past revealed Himself as Christ came into the world. And as we were able to look at the face of Christ, and as I said earlier in the prayer, we were to handle Him and we were to see Him and to hear Him. This is revelation at its best, folks, for God to reveal Himself in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the miracles that He did, the signs and wonders that He did, the healing, the casting out of demons, all that pointed to the truth of who He is. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the one in whom there is salvation and no other. And so that is the purpose of miracles. And we need to always keep that in mind as we come to the miracles in Scripture. There is no miracle that God does in Scripture that is for no reason at all or that's just simply for the good of somebody. It always there shows that God is and His revelation is indeed true and He is a God to be worshipped. As the Israelites came out of Egypt and as they, uh, went over the, um, uh, as they went over the Red Sea and then later as they came, came over the Jordan River, um, that miracle was to teach the Israelites a, a deep lesson and that lesson was is that God is all-powerful and God was to be worshipped exclusively. You remember the miracle that he did with Naaman? That Syrian general who was well-respected and he had everything going in his life. He was most popular in Syria and all of a sudden he came down with leprosy. The horrible disease of leprosy. And so it was told the king of Syria that there was a prophet by a little girl, that there was a prophet in Israel who could heal Naaman. And so Naaman went. And he went with his, with his uh, whole parade of soldiers and people of high rank, expecting him to call down from heaven and thunder to come down and to, and to heal him immediately uh, in the way that they thought that he ought to be healed. But no, no. Elisha didn't want to bring any kind of attraction to himself and he just simply said, you go and wash seven times in Jordan. And eventually he did after a fit of anger. And he was immediately healed. His skin like the skin of a child. But what was the purpose of that miracle? Simply to heal Naaman? Not at all. It was to show Naaman. It was to show the king of Syria. It was to show all of Syria. It was to show all of Israel which had defected from God. It was to show all of the nations who heard about this because many people heard about Naaman. He was a very famous general that there is a God in Israel who can heal. And that's exactly what Elisha told Naaman. There is a God who can heal. These miracles show who God is. Show the truth of who He is. Let's never ever forget that. That's why the apostles do these. That's why Jesus Christ did the miracles. To show the truth about Himself. To show the truth about the gospel. That's why the apostles did the miracles. To show the truth about the Lord Jesus and the gospel. <clears throat> That's why we look at these miracles. We do not stop at the miracle. We go past the miracle, which the Jews did not do. And we look at the one behind the miracle. Almighty God. 
the only true God, and there is salvation in no other. Secondly, I believe as we look at this passage, that we do indeed see how rapidly the gospel advanced in this world. This was not a slow moving movement at all. It is very apparent that the power of God is involved in this movement. It was not a movement of man. It was a movement of God as He permeated the world with the gospel. Um, We already see by Acts chapter 9, we have seen the gospel, of course, being proclaimed in Jerusalem and a lot of Jews uh, of the dispersion being there right there at that day of Pentecost and they actually hearing the good works of God, the gospel, and they going back to their home uh, countries and nations and in that way it was spread to the whole world but, but actually in person we can see that already that the gospel has gone to, um, it's gone to uh, 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 Damascus and it's gone to Uh, Samaria by Philip's preaching, right? And uh, it has gone to Ethiopia uh, by... uh, 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 It's gone to Ethiopia by... uh, By uh, who? Yeah, the eunuch, that's right. But but it's gone to Ethiopia by Philip's preaching too. Okay, get my name straight here. It's gone to Ethiopia by Philip's preaching. And it has now come to... uh, uh, to uh, Lydda and uh, Joppa, which is way west on the Mediterranean Sea and way north in Judea. And don't forget that Paul is where now? At Tarshish. And where is Tarshish? In the Gentile world, squarely there. And do we think that Paul is just simply being quiet? Don't count on it at all. Paul was exercising his apostolic office as I shared in the last message. He was obviously preaching there to his family, to his associates, uh, to to the philosophers, to whoever would listen to him. I can see him standing on the street corners in Tarshish and preaching the gospel. And the philosophers saying, as they did at Athens, uh, we want to hear more about this strange philosophy that you're teaching. That was Paul. And so the gospel by this time had gone through through much of the, uh, we could say, of the world close to Jerusalem. And it was on its way. And it's going to be on its way big time, beginning in chapter 13. And so we see then this fast-moving gospel, and we ask ourselves again, and I want to emphasize this, why and how did the gospel move so fast? And the reason is, is because as Paul said in Romans chapter 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the what? Power of God unto salvation to the Jew first, which it went to first, and then to the Greek, to the Gentile. It's the power of God. God's power is at work. And so we see that. We see it moving. And we see nothing stopping it. We see it taking off here uh, in this chapter as, as well as in the previous chapter. And then third, let us never forget the practical side 
of the gospel. Let us not forget the practical side of the gospel. When the gospel is received, it changes people, doesn't it? It changes people. Something happens in them. Yes, that old man is still there and the deeds of the old man tend to crop up in our lives. Making us, as Brother Ron pointed out in the last lesson, that we will never ever achieve perfection in this life. Never. Because those, the deeds of the old man are there and they're constantly cropping up and we're constantly having to deal with them and to mortify those deeds. But still, there is a fundamental root change that takes place in our lives. And that change in every case here of a true believer, some, sure, more so than others, but in every believer, that change causes us to begin to look at not ourselves and to be consumed with ourselves, but to begin to look at the needs of other people. And that happens to every believer. This is not just something that some people have a special gift in. Some people uh, have a special gift in being selfless and other people don't have that gift and so they're okay with selfishness. That isn't the case. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. And that's agape love. That's love for other people. That is a selfless love, isn't it? And so the fruit of the Spirit, from the, the very first one on the list there, is love. And so when we are saved by God's power and grace working in us, our heart is changed. We have a different attitude then toward other people and we want to seek to help them. And especially we want to help the people of the household of faith. We help, want to help everyone, of course, but especially as Paul says in Galatians chapter six, we must seek to help the household of faith. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, he says, but especially to them who are the household of faith. And so that's the believer. There's this fundamental change that takes place. And that fundamental change that takes place is, is that we become practical in our seeking to help other people. We don't just say, well, I hope that your needs are met and go our way. We're not like that person that James describes in James chapter 2. We are different from that. We are people who, who do. Faith works by what? Love, doesn't it? Faith works by love. And if we have true faith then, then we're going to demonstrate love. It's not the other way around. As some want to say, that that love is there, and then that love generates faith. No, that love is not innate within us. There is faith by the grace of God working in us, and then that faith, of course, which is a God-given faith, then generates love for others. That's how it works. Faith worketh by love, the Apostle Paul says. And so we see that very clearly, especially in the life here of, uh, of, of Dorcas. Let's, let's remember that if we are genuine believers, that we are going to have a genuine concern 
for other people, and especially those who are the household of faith. It's very clear as we look at this last section here, uh, this part of chapter 9 and chapter 10 and 11 and, and 12, that God is not finished with Peter at all. And as we go beyond, even in the, the Apostle Paul's ministry, when his ministry comes into the limelight in the remaining chapters of Acts, it's very clear that God's still not finished with Peter. Peter is still doing God's work and being the apostle that he's called to be. And, um, and so he's not finished with Peter. And uh, we need to remember that that's the same case with every single person here today, believers. Every person here today who is a believer, it's the same case. And the reason I can say that is because you are still alive, right? Everybody here believing? We are, aren't we? And if we are believers and we are alive, even if we can't do anything physically, there is still a reason that God has us here if we're alive, right? And so God's not finished with us. And so we need then to be doing, we need to be about our work that God has called us to do. Whatever that might be. And as we think about our work, it always needs to be uh, thinking about it in the context of, of serving and of helping and of doing that which God has given us to do, which is to love people and to especially to love each other in the household of faith and to do all that we can to lift each other up and to encourage each other, to comfort each other and to be practical and to do the things that are necessary to meet the needs of one another. I believe we see that coming out of our passage. So may God help us then to look at this last section, look at the ministry that the Apostle Peter will have here, see this beautiful transition that is coming in where Peter's ministry is not ending, but simply the focus now will be shifted to the entire world. The gospel will be going to the entire world. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the encouragement that we can draw from the ministry of this particular apostle, the Apostle Peter, um, especially at a time uh, when it was difficult to minister and it was difficult to preach the gospel, and yet we see him doing that and we see him faithful to his post as an apostle. We see also, Father, this woman, uh, Dorcas, and how she was so faithful with the things that you had given her to do. Uh, and that she did faithfully, working with her hands, working, doing what she could do. And Father, how the people in the church depended upon her and what great sadness it brought to their hearts when she passed away. She was vital to that church and, and in, in your grace and in your mercy to those people who brought her back to life so that she could continue her ministry. We see, Father, that, uh, that you are indeed a good God, a, a, a kind God, a compassionate God, a merciful one. And you deal such, Father, with your people in unspeakable ways. And we praise you for that. We ask that we would also seek to pattern our lives this way. We pray, Father, that you would strengthen us for ministry. Enable us, we pray, to not see 
uh, things from the perspective of wanting to attract attention to ourselves, but simply, Father, to glorify your holy name. May that be the, the, the objective that we would have in mind. Help us, we pray. Strengthen us, we ask then, and from this passage. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh-uh. <clears throat>